You went now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and I have a special guest joining me for this episode. He's a journalist, an author and lecturer who's very kindly offered to join me today to discuss the 1935 Jigsaw Murders as detailed in his first book, The Jigsaw Murders, the true story of the Ruxton killings and the birth of modern forensics. Please welcome to the show Jeremy Craddock. Hi, Stuart. Thank you very much for asking me onto the onto the podcast. What we do before we start, Jeremy, is I always ask an icebreaker question. It's nothing too strenuous, nothing to worry about. All I want to know is, as a journalist, a writer, is there a news story that you wish you would have been involved in reporting? So it might be something very recent, if you're more in the author side than journalism, or it might be something from way back when. Gosh, that, that's a good question. I mean, I, there's so many I could pick from, whether it's... I'll tell you what, I've always always loved the Beatles, and I think it must have been an exciting time to have been a journalist in the 60s, particularly at the time of the emergence of Beatlemania. Mm. I think probably to observe that that going on. So that, that's kind of a general news story, but um, from a sort of crime point of view, I suppose, pick any really from the, from the past. I mean... You know, I've covered um, quite a lot of crime in my time. So I've covered some big cases, but um, I think Beatlemania would have been an exciting thing to uh, to cover. What about Jack the Ripper? Well, yeah. Well, the time times of the um, uh, you know the Penny Dreadfuls, weren't they? And, mm. and actually, our, our perception of Jack the Ripper was kind of forged by those early Penny Dreadful newspapers, where maybe there wasn't a a lot of adherence to facts. There was a lot of sensationalism going on. And, you know, the, the sort of the image we have of Jack the Ripper was kind of painted by those those early newspapers, I would say. So, yeah, it would have been an interesting period, I think. What do you think about sensationalism in modern reporting and journalism? Because we're in the period, I like to call it, of the clickbait era, where a lot of the stuff is so ludicrously in your face, you have to click it for clicks to get people in, to get people signed up to email lists and stuff. To say 100-odd years ago was Jack the Ripper, and that was sensationalist. How far do you think we've come? I think I first became a, a journalist. It's 30 years ago this year when I when I was a trainee reporter, and it's obviously pre-internet, pre-email. So I think the landscape of the media was very different. The way I was taught journalism and the sort of journalism that was out there is very different to what's out there now. I teach journalism now to hopefully journalists of the future in Manchester. And it's inevitable. We have to talk about clickbaity headlines and, you know, modern journalists and news organisations have to engage with all of that. But it's it's not journalism that I, I've ever done or was trained in, really. So it, to me, it feels a bit alien. But, you know, it, in the modern world, news organisations are competing with so many other forms of media that there are certain techniques of getting getting an audience yeah to me it doesn't doesn't always look like journalism to me it's more social media yeah manipulation really i think it's the significantly reduced attention span of the generation cover what's the what's the current generation called i was millennials millennial yeah After that um, was what generation 
Y or something? Or like, yeah. Z? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't remember, to be honest, which one it is. But yeah, uh, is, it Gen, is it Gen Z? I'm, I'm it not could sure, be Gen Z, yeah. I think it sure. might be that, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. It's about um, shorter attention span, isn't it? The thing I find difficult with clickbait is that quite often it's quite dishonest, isn't it? You, you're sold on a certain headline and then you click through and the story doesn't back up what was in the headline. Mm. But, you know, the media, journalism, it's a very broad church and, you know, there are, you know, those are extremes on the spectrum. And then the sort of journalism I suppose I did where you've got to be impartial, you've got to do your research, you've got to corroborate evidence. That's still there, but, you know, the, the, the media has evolved really and the, the platforms through which people read their news or consume the news has changed. But it's a crucial thing with, with things like crime reporting, you know, and um, true crime as well, and particularly with writing the book that I wrote, you know. I had to lean back on my, my training as a journalist, you know, and uh, making sure that what I was publishing was backed up. Because inevitably there was a lot of sensational reporting around the Ruxton case, which we're going to talk about, you know. And sometimes it's sifting through that. It's interesting, this true crime wave that's been going on Mm. for probably nigh on a decade or more now. How long do you think that's going to last? Well, I mean, I suppose there are peaks and troughs, aren't there? But I, I I think we've always had a fascination with killing, with murder. I think I, I think it's deep in our DNA, and you know you you only have to look back through literature. You know, go back to Shakespeare; some of his greatest plays were about murder. You think of Macbeth, you think about Hamlet, you think about his his history plays. They're based on power, but they're based on murder as well. And I, I think he was writing for his audiences back in the 17th century, and there was a desire for stories about blood, about murder. And I don't think it ever goes away. I, th- I just think the the way we tell our stories, our true crime or our crime fiction, I, I just think that's what changes. And obviously, I think we've seen an explosion recently because we've got the technology for podcasts as well as you know TV streaming. And I think true crime books are just one form of that. The more the more traditional end of things. True crime books are booming. One thing I've noticed is that a lot of People retire all the time, so perhaps it's not the best argument, but a lot of people I've had on are like ex-coppers who grew up or policed in the 80s, 90s, and early noughties. So a lot of those people are coming to the end of their career now, and they're writing memoirs, and these are really influential people within the policing industry who've researched some of the, or even been part of some of the biggest cases that this country's ever seen. Exactly, and I suppose... They're in a, in, a, in a unique position to be able to tell those stories, but give the, obviously give the police perspective. I spoke at CrimeCon back end of last year in London, and um, obviously I was there. There was a few journalists and writers like myself, but there were a lot of police officers, as you say, people like Colin Sutton. He was one of the big speakers there. But yeah, you re- when you go to these events, you realise the, the huge audience for true crime. I just think that the media podcasting is there now to be able to reach wider audiences and it's easy for people to participate in the true crime discussion and engage with presenters like yourself. So your career where it's at now especially with the writing and the book which we'll come on to did you ever envisage that when you started at the Westmoreland Gazette? I mean as I say I started there 30 years ago as a trainee reporter 
It was always my ambition to be a writer. That's kind of why I became a journalist. I didn't particularly see myself as, you know, true crime wasn't where I saw it going, but I was just interested in storytelling. But when I look back, I can sort of see that I've always had a fascination with true crime. My late mum actually was very, very interested in it. She always used to read, you know, a lot of the classic books on on it, uh, about the Moors murderers, the Yorkshire Ripper, that sort of thing. She used to t- talk about it. So I suppose it was always there in the background. And when I thought back about it, actually, my my mum's father, so my, my grandfather, was um, a prison officer at Risley Prison in in Warrington. And he was there at the time when the Moors murderers were on remand. And wow. he, I remember my mum telling me that he escorted Ian Brady to Chester Assizes when the Moors murder trials were on. So he, he essentially guarded Ian Brady. So I remember her talking about that and then seeing the books that she was reading. So I suppose that must have been in the, in the background there for me. But then, yeah, I, I became a became a journalist, started on my local paper, the Westmoreland Gazette in Kendall. And when you start out as a trainee reporter on a, on a local paper, you do everything, really. You, you get to cover the courts, you know, uh, magistrates' courts, and you build your way up to Crown Court. You do all the day-to-day reporting, council meetings and that. But I always enjoyed, quite enjoyed the crime reporting and covering cases. A lot of them are quite mundane cases, but you would get the odd big murder case, things like that. So, but it was, I would say it was only really in the last few years that I um, really thought about writing a true crime book. I'd written a lot of fiction and I'd written a few plays over the years. And I kind of thought that was the direction I might go in. But then it was, I just had the idea for, for the jigsaw murders. And I thought, well, I can combine my journalism, my sort of reporting on real events, combine that with my interest in writing stories and you know narratives and I suppose that's where that came from it makes sense as a transition one thing I'm interested to find out if you can answer for me when I do research for my episodes I reference everything and I use an APA reference guide website thing that kind of formats it for me just so Mm. it looks pretty um, but yeah. one of the one of the things it always asks for when I go through old newspapers in the newspaper archive, it always asks for who wrote the article. Now, what I see, especially in the eighties, nineties, a lot of the little articles they don't tend to have a name to them. No. At what point would you get to a level where they said, "Right, you can have a big spread," or "We're going to put your name on this one"? So, if you are working, if you're working on a newspaper, having your name on it, which is essentially it's called a byline, so. Generally, in traditional print news, um, the bigger articles would get the byline, so the front page. You might see smaller bylines on the page. But if you're writing a, a smaller piece, you know, like a filler, or a, we, we call them nibs, news in briefs, then you're not going to get your name on that. And it could, be, it could be down to the editor deciding just to cut a story to fill a space on, uh, on a page, you know, literally a white space. It's going to be about 50 words long. And they, they may say to a reporter, we need a, a 50-word filler. Can you fill that? You're not going to get your, your name on that. Um, I suppose on, online nowadays with news on, on websites, it's probably easy to see who's written it because um, yeah. I guess the templates of a, a website will have the author's name. There. So it's probably easier now to trace who it is. Yeah, definitely. I had the same issue when I was looking at old newspaper reports for the book. 
more often than not, you, you wouldn't know who had written it. You know, um, you could just you could identify the newspaper, the date, probably the page it appeared yeah. on, but you'd yeah, it's lost in the mists of time. <laughs> who wrote it? <laughs> and uh, how does that feel as a journalist, though? I think I know, say 50 words, it's no great shakes. You could probably whip that out in a couple of minutes, but if you wrote a decent sized article that's more than a nib, as you called it, but not yeah. one of the, the main headlines and your name's not on it, would you be like, oh, put my heart and soul into that? Yeah, the thing with journalism, particularly if you're working in newspapers, when you you, you are literally tur- you know churning stories out, you kind of lose your ego very quickly. You, when you've got an editor shouting at you and saying, just get this bloody thing written. <laughs> yeah, you sort of, you learn not to be precious about your writing. Yeah. Which could be hard. It can be hard at first, but um, actually, I think it's really good training because it means you're not going to be precious about what you write, and you you know that somebody else is probably going to rewrite it if if they need to. Um, they're going to edit it, so it's really it's a really good training ground. I mean, nowadays, if I wrote, you know, I would if I wrote something, and I do still freelance, I'll, I'll be writing bigger pieces. So I suppose my ego would say I would expect a byline for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But then again, I'm not writing so much now. I don't. I'd only be writing stuff I want to write. Whereas back in the day when I was a reporter, I was churning half a dozen stories out every day. You know, big stories, and then maybe a handful of shorter stories as well. So um, yeah, good good training actually. Uh, working as a as a sort of journalist on a, on a local paper or a, a regional paper. If you work in freelance, then do big papers or even online news outlets do they approach freelancers to write them articles or is all their work done in-house it's a mixture really so a lot of local media now probably won't use freelancers just because they don't have the budget so their mm. their in-house staff reporters will write the news some of the bigger papers manchester evening news yorkshire post will probably have a budget for freelancers the majority of stuff will be written by staff but they may bring in specialist writers and editors might approach a certain person to write on a certain subject if they're an expert in a particular field. And then the nationals use quite a lot of freelance work. And then you're into the realms of the celebrity writers as well. Yeah, they do columns and stuff. Work. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. of Jeremy Clarkson. He writes about half a dozen columns a week for various papers. So he's just knocking them out, yeah. What's your opinion on people like that, whether it's a celebrity writing an article or recently in true crime, you've got Kim Kardashian's doing a true crime podcast. What's your opinion on outsiders, celebrities, famous people coming into an area that so many independents dedicate their lives to, and then they just get swept under the rug? Yeah, it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? And, and I can see how, as somebody who's not got that platform that Kim Kardashian has, I can see how it's frustrating. They're sort of getting all the all the attention. But I do think, you know, having worked in, in newspapers and you, and also publishing now, you realise it's a business and, you know, the Kim Kardashians, they kind of, they get a lot of the glory, but they do sort of pull in audiences that wouldn't necessarily look at or read a book or look at a podcast. So maybe they can help raise the game for the independents. So I, I, I do take a pragmatic view and think, well, it's uh, publishing newspapers it's a business and it has to it has to be viable and i guess if that's the price we have to pay for celebrities then you know hopefully it can raise the game for everybody else 
I know there's a, there's a bit of a backlash against comedians who then write novels and uh, children's books. And I, I do mm. hear a lot of novelists and children's authors complaining about you know, David Walliams getting all the glory. And, <laughs> you know, I, I agree with them to an extent, but I also think, well, if it's helping to get people read, then there might be a benefit for everybody. But yeah, I'm not quite in the position yet of um, matching up with Kim Kardashian. So uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not too bitter. Yeah, it makes sense. Bringing in an audience is good. As long as whatever it is, whether it's a kid's book or a podcast or an article, as long as it's got the right motive behind it, then crack on. You can't just say, don't do something because you're famous. No, no. I mean, that is always the advice with publishing, isn't it? You know, um, what's the best way to get a book published? And they always say, well, become famous first. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I would say is that we obviously live in a in a world where there are so many platforms. So, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it would be even harder to get through because, you know, there were gatekeepers in the publishing industry. Nowadays, you can do things yourself. You can build your own platform and audience, you know, and uh, self-publish. So there are ways in there, but it's, yeah, it can be hard work getting your voice heard. One thing I read on your website which interested me is you mentioned you have a passion for narrative nonfiction. So this is mm. it's becoming ever more popular, I think. It's sort of a hybrid of telling a true story, but in a way that flows like a fictional narrative. You mentioned you're hoping to get um a, or start a PhD in this subject. Yeah, that's the PhD at the moment is on is on ice, so um from a time perspective. But yeah, narrative nonfiction. I guess when I, when I look back at what I was interested in, I, I've always loved fiction and drama, plays, all that sort of thing. But I was always really interested in biographies. I always read a lot of biographies of anything, really. And the penny dropped for me with writing when I realised that I could combine the true stories with using fictional techniques. So, you know, telling a mystery story or using suspense there were a number of authors that I read that kind of helped me to come to that conclusion. A lot of them are American writers like Eric Larson, who wrote Devil in the White City, David Graham, who wrote Killers of the Flower Moon, all true story, true crime stories. And in this country, uh, Kate Summerscale, who wrote Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, which you might, might be familiar with. Um, that was a true crime from the, the 19th century got turned into a TV drama, actually, a few years back. Yeah, so it really fascinates me how you can tell a true story but let it unfold like a novel rather than giving everything away at the start, Mm. Um, which is kind of what you do. When you're writing straight news, you're obviously telling the reader straight away what's happened. You're giving them the most important details right at the top of the story. But narrative nonfiction, you can use the element of mystery and uh, withhold information and tell a compelling story. So I think there's a lot of exciting things going on with narrative nonfiction in, in, in newspapers and magazines as well as in books. That was one of the things that really drew me to try to write this book. Well, might as well move on to it then. So it's called The Jigsaw Murders, The True Story of the Ruxton Killings and the Birth of Modern Forensics. I only realised when I looked into the book that Ruxton is, uh, is the actual name of the killer. It sounds like a place, like Buxton or something. I was like, oh, where, where's that in the UK? <laughs> That's good. I, you know, I'd never thought of that. But yeah, Ruxton, Ruxton was was the killer, Dr. Ruxton. And his wife, who he, who he murdered, was Isabella Ruxton as well. Yeah. How did it come about? How did you decide to write about this case? 
it goes back to my childhood, really. So, so I I was born and grew up in the Lake District, about half an hour from Lancaster, which is where the murders took place. And my dad was born in Lancaster, so we had links to the to the city. And when when I was a kid, he used to take myself and my brother to Lancaster, and whenever we drove through Lancaster, he would point out the house where the two murders took place. And he knew a little, little bit about it and would tell us about it. So it was always in my mind. I always, always had a bit of a fascination with it. Then later, I, I was a student in Lancaster, did my degree there, stuck around, got my initial jobs in newspapers and was quite often covering court cases in Lancaster, particularly at the Crown Court, uh, which is up in the castle at Lancaster, which is also where the um, the Pendle witches were tried uh, back in the... 15th, 16th, 15th century. Yeah, so I used to cover cases there and then lived in Lancaster for quite a while. But when I came to think about an idea for a book, I, I started thinking about the, the Dr. Ruxton killings and I did a bit of research. And to my mind, there had never really been a full-length book that went into great detail about the whole story. There were lots of little thin books and a lot of magazine coverage of it and, you know, like true crime magazines that you see every month. There was a lot of articles and they were quite often very sensational. So they they really focus on the gory side of the murders, which is a part of the story, but they didn't really get to the heart of the story and they didn't really show who the victims were or the story around the murders. So that was my ambition really was to try and treat it in a journalistic way and, and try and research the story and, and try and reveal that, those stories that had never been told before. So that, that was it, really. That was the, the seed of it. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Did you face any difficulties researching a case that's almost 90 years old? Yeah, um, there, was a lot, there was a lot more archive material there, which... I hadn't anticipated. The biggest obstacle actually was um, was was COVID. So I'd, I'd been working on yeah. the book for for a couple of years, and I'd I'd got to the point where I, I was planning my trips to go to Glasgow and Edinburgh to the university archives, where a lot of the archives material is. But because of COVID, those archives were closed, and I couldn't travel, so I had to do it all remotely, and with the help of the archivists, getting them to send me information so that that was a challenge but yeah inevitably it's harder to it's hard in the fact that you're not going to be able to do interviews with people who were there which is what you would do as a journalist so I had to rely on court documents newspaper reports the archives of the forensic scientists who worked on on the case and piece it together that way one of the ethical issues with doing a case if it's still in recent living memory is from an ethical point of view is obviously, you, you know, you could be digging up very upsetting material for living family members, that sort of thing. You might get a resistance from people wanting to speak to you, but I didn't, I didn't have that really because it was so long ago, but there were people still around who were descendants of people from the families or people who were patients of Dr. Ruxton. And I actually did manage to speak to the niece of one of the victims, and this lady is now 94, 95. So she had distant memories of being a child, and she remembers the murder. She remembers her relative who was killed. 
I actually spoke to her after the book was published last year, and I've, I've managed to the paperback's coming out in a, in a in a week or so, and it, I've I've updated the books. So I've got an interview with her in, so uh, yeah, oh, cool. By the time this comes out, the it will be out. The hardback came out what in was it May twenty twenty one? Yeah, so it's it's been quite a long time between it coming out and then the paperback coming out. Yeah, do they do that for marketing purposes? I've always wondered why they release one version hardback and then delay the paperback. I think it's trying to make as much money as possible. Yeah, like two, two releases. Yeah, so I mean, they obviously don't sell as many hardbacks, but they try and make the money with that. And that's when it when they, when it'll get reviewed a lot. But then, yeah, the the, the paperback is there because more people are going to buy the paperback. I guess. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, the, and it's an audio book as well. So interesting what you were saying before about we talk about podcasting, but audio books in true crime are big, aren't they? Yeah, they are. So, um, so they are quite big. Mm. Have you narrated it yourself? I haven't. No, everyone asks me that, but um, no, there's an actor who who did that. So yeah, I don't think they'd have. Uh, my Kendall accent might have put people off. <laughs> yeah, leave it to the actors. That's leave it to the actor. Yeah, to the yeah. movies. Yeah. So you know when you're researching the book and then writing it, mm. I'm trying to compare it to how I would write a script, but mine is significantly less words. So say mine's five thousand, yours is what eighty to a hundred thousand words. Let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Do you? gather all the research first and then convert that into a book or do you write it as you're going along? Write as I go along. It's Because obviously I'm, I was fitting the writing in around, you know, working full-time as a lecturer at Manchester Met Uni and, fam, you know, family life and that. And uh, so it was doing it on, on the go. And, and obviously you don't know what material you're going to uncover. So the, the one thing with it being a true story is you, you know the, the kind of the – the narrative, you know what's there. And then it's obviously trying to find the information to to flesh it out, if you will. And, and obviously the, the kind of the key scenes within the book would be determined by what information I could find. Obviously, because it's journalism, because it's narrative nonfiction, I couldn't make anything up. Yeah. So if I couldn't find information, then I couldn't really write about it. You, you can speculate to a degree, you can make logical assumptions as long as that you're not speculating and you're distorting the story so you could make certain assumptions that Ruxon might have done certain things but not in relation to the killing so a lot a lot of the writing around the Ruxton killings you'll often find there's a scene where they describe exactly what happened in the murder so they'll dramatize it with Ruxton did this Ruxton did that Ruxton never confessed to it. There was a confession that was found afterwards, but he never, under under interview, he never confessed that he killed the two women. There were obviously no living, you know, no survivors to it. So we don't actually know precisely what happened. We've only got the the interpretation of the forensic scientists, which was given at the trial. So I had this problem with the book. Do I write the murder scene or what do I do? So when you read the book, I don't actually describe the murder. You sort of get the scenes leading up to it, and then we pick up the story immediately afterwards and what, what Ruxton did. And that's all based on recorded evidence. But you find out in the trial scenes what he did because the forensic scientists talked about it. You know, They, they go into a lot of detail about how he killed them. But from an ethical point of view and a journalistic point of view, I felt that was important, really, because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't make anything up 
But you do see accounts of the trial of the case where writers have done that and they've tried, and you're sort of straying into fiction. Then I, I think, you know, from an ethical point of view, what angle did you come at with this book? What was your main aim when writing it? What do you want people to take away from it? Like I said, I wanted to present the story in a different light, in, in a way that it had never been presented before. We'd had a lot about the the forensics, the police investigation. But the protagonists, so Ruxton and his victims and the people around them, they were always quite two-dimensional in previous reports. I wanted to try and show them as real people and the kind of the, the tragedy at the heart of this story and how, how awful it was for the two women, for the children of the, of the Ruxtons, and almost to present the two women who were killed as real people rather than just these victims and because you, you'll see a lot of the graphic photographs around the case. You'll see a lot of that in uh, magazines and other other books about the case. And I didn't want any of the graphic evidence in the book. You know, uh, none of the photographs are in there. So, yes, yeah, so it was it was kind of humanising the victims and um, showing the human cost of this case, really. Oh, it's good to come at it with that angle, I think. I think you've done the right thing by omitting some of the potentially... Stuff that's basically could is conjecture. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Can you, for the sake of my listeners who haven't heard this story before, without going into too much detail, because we want people to pick up your book, can you give me sort of a high-level rundown of this story and what it's all about? Yeah, certainly, yeah. Well, I suppose the best way to do it is that the story, in a way, be, the, the public first became aware of this when two ladies were walking in the Scottish borders in the autumn of 1935 and they were crossing over a ravine, over a bridge, over a ravine, and they spotted what they thought was a human arm under the bridge. That then triggered a police investigation and essentially what happened is they fa- the police found bundles of clothing and parcels of newspapers wrapped around body parts, dismembered bodies. They, they weren't sure at the start whether how many bodies they were dealing with, but it soon became clear it was the bodies of two people. So straight away, the police had this mystery, and it became known as the Jigsaw Murders because of these you know, dismembered bodies and different body parts. So the police were involved. The uh, forensic scientists at Glasgow and um, Edinburgh University became involved in trying to solve this mystery. Then we find out that Dr. Buck Ruxton, a doctor in Lancaster, came under suspicion because his wife and their children's nanny had gone missing a few weeks earlier. And he'd kind of been telling all kinds of stories around Lancaster about where they'd gone. He said they'd gone off together. And Dr. Ruxton was a doctor who was, he was Indian. He'd come from India to study medicine in the UK found himself in Lancaster. He bought a, um, a medical practice in Lancaster and he and his wife, Isabella, set up home there. And he became a very, very popular doctor in uh, Lancaster with lots of patients. And he was seen as being a very compassionate man. He would quite often treat patients without payment. Um, this was the time before the NHS, so people had to pay for their medical care. Yeah. And if they were from families that didn't have a lot of money, they would quite often not go to the doctor rather, you know, because they couldn't afford it. But Dr. Ruxton would give them free treatment. So he was very popular publicly. 
But behind closed doors, he was a very jealous man, a very controlling towards his wife. And they, they had a very toxic relationship. So he fell under suspicion. And the forensic scientists in Scotland basically created new techniques for um, solving crimes of this nature and were able to solve the, the jigsaw murders with the police and were able to prove that Dr. Ruxton had committed this double murder, essentially. A lot of the techniques that they developed, they'd never been done before, and they're techniques that are still, quite a few of them are still being used today. So a lot of reconstruction of the bodies and uh, taking photographs of the, the victim's skulls and overlaying photographs of them when they were alive and doing comparisons that way. So it was a, it was a landmark case that, um, and it, it, it had a, a global audience. You know, the media from around the world was fascinated by this case. So that's it, really, in in uh, in essence. It is a fascinating one, especially like you mentioned with the, because the way I understand he dismembered the two women was so surgically precise. Mm. Only someone with a level of expertise, such as a doctor, as he was, could have could have achieved it. Yeah, it's one of those conundrums, really, that he he obviously was trying to, to uh, cover his tracks. And he, so he thought, well, if I remove all identifying features, it would never be able to be traced back to me. But of course, by doing so, he kind of alerted the police and the forensic scientists to the fact that he was a man with medical training who was, he had done you know, um, he'd probably in his training been used to sort of dissecting bodies. So he, he had the techniques and also the, the parts of the bodies that he removed, identifying features. Those were the kind of the, the features that the police will be able to identify with the, the missing wife and children's nanny, you know, the sort of... Is this um, like teeth and... Yeah, like- yeah. And um, the children's nanny, Mary Rogerson, I think she had a... She had a turn in her eye, so he'd removed her eye, which again is right. it's kind of like saying to the police, "Well, this eye was significant, mm-hmm. you know." So therefore, yeah. when they investigate Mary Rogerson and they look at her description, they can see that she had a turn in her eye. So it was it was a it was a lead for them to work upon, if you will. Absolutely, yeah. like I say, it's a fascinating case, and I urge everyone. I'm going to link the book in the description of this episode. A reminder, it's called The Jigsaw Murders, the true story of the Ruxton killings and the birth of modern forensics. So with yourself, you've done the journalism, you do the lecturing, you do the freelance writing, you do the narrative nonfiction writing. Does that leave any free time for hobbies or (laughs) what do you do to relax? Yeah, the rest of my time probably is taken up with family, you know, and... uh dad's taxi and that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, my interests are, are, are books, films, TV, music, sport, football in particular, Liverpool fan, you know, so Ooh, okay. trying to, yeah, okay. so probably, probably got a bit of a clash there. <laughs> <laughs> You're no a Leeds comment. fan. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm actually Huddersfield, but uh, uh, okay. I like to see Leeds doing well. My daughter's yeah. born here, so. All right, that's nice. Would you give... I should say what really, what advice would you give to someone who's aspiring to be a writer, whether that's in journalism, nonfiction, fiction, just writing in general, what advice do you perhaps wish you'd have known at the start? Hmm. What I've learned, I would say over the years is um, 
I guess to be a, to be a good writer or to, to write, you need to read a lot. You know, it's surprising actually how many people I speak to they've fallen in love with the idea of being a writer, but they don't read anything. You know, they don't read yeah, what yeah. they want to write. And it's the same with my journalism students. You know, you've got you've got to read the news, you've got to consume it, but also you've got to do it. You've got to be a writer. You've got to write. And I would say do something every day. It doesn't ha- it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, you can always improve a piece of writing, but just practice it. Try different genres as well. You know, I mean, I over the years I tried everything from you know poetry, songwriting, writing plays and fiction, and then and then the penny dropped with you know combining my journalism with my creative writing. But yeah, try and identify what type of writing you like and which writers do you like to read, and try and see how how they've done it. You know what. What's their style? And copy as well is a good thing. You know, obviously copy it, but then try and develop your own story as well. So when you're lecturing journalism, mm. is your focus more on, say, the construction of the story, the arc of what you're trying to put across, or is it focused on the literature side? The reason I ask is because when I'm writing, I have a Grammarly. Have you heard of Grammarly? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I use Grammarly because I'm by no means a writer, an English student or whatever. I read the odd book when yes, I can. Yeah. But it helps me construct sentences in a more eloquent manner. It helps me. My habit is to write in the passive tense. So it, it's trying to focus on that. It's a bit of an over-reliance for me now. So I guess my question is, do you teach them more the skill of writing or the skill of writing a story? Both, really. It's interesting because I, I teach I teach across all year groups. So at the moment, I'm teaching our first years how to structure a news article. So for a newspaper where you, you grab the attention with the first sentence and then you unfold the details, it kind of tapers off in importance. You've got to get the most important details at the top. By the time you get to the bottom of the story, it's kind of the less important details. Mm. So we focus on that. But then I'm also teaching our third-year students, and we're teaching them long-form journalism at the moment. So it's still news report, it's still journalism, but they're having to tell a story, and they've got a lot more words in which to do it. And they can use a lot of these techniques of narrative nonfiction. So we do all of that, but we, we look at, ethics you know law and we, we do a lot on media law as well obviously you need to be legally sound to be a journalist you know you have concerns like libel defamation you know making sure that you're not writing something that's untrue and therefore you might get sued for for libel i mean libel was less of a concern with the jigsaw murders because once somebody's died you can't libel them it's been more of a concern with more recent ideas I've been exploring where potentially I could be sued for libel so um, yes we we cover everything really and I think there all those things are important you know but I I think you're right learning to tell a story is really important in journalism as in in fiction as well if you can tell a story if you can get the the reader or the listener to keep listening or turn the pages then you've got you've got a real talent and you can learn other stuff around it but Learn how to tell a story, I think, is really important. Good advice. Can you give me a day in the life of Jeremy Craddock? Yeah, well, it's um, it's very varied. So today I'm, I'm at home. Um, I haven't got any teaching today. So today, um, aside from 
speaking to you. I mean, I do do this kind of thing in relation to my book, but I, I've been speaking to students this morning, sort of having tutorials with individual students. Then Monday to Wednesday, I'll be in Manchester teaching different modules. So I'll be doing a lecture followed by a, a tutorial. And then I'll come home and there'll be all the family stuff to deal with. But then maybe in the evening, I'll try and find some time to work on my own writing projects, really. Um, so it's a lot of juggling, but actually I, I really love the the mix. I think I'd find it I find it dull, really, if I was just doing the same thing over and over. Yeah. And that was one of the things that really drew me to journalism was the variety. I agree with that one. What sort of stuff have you got in the pipeline in the the shred of spare time that you find on an evening? Well, I'm, I'm currently developing a, an idea. It's sort of true crime. It's about a recent court case, I would say, and it touches on, rather than it being a murder, it, it touches on subjects like free speech and where's the line drawn in relation to what we can say and how somebody got into trouble for something that they put on social media. So it's kind of along along those lines. I had been working on a, on another book idea and had got quite a long way along the line with it and then sort of hit a bit of a legal problem with it. So decided to pull the plug on it. So that's kind of what I was alluding to before about... Um, Sometimes there are legal things you've got to be careful about with a case that's happened in living memory. But yeah, exploring different ideas, I think, to see. The other thing is, is trying to find out if there's enough research to get a book out of it. Yeah, I feel you. I definitely feel you. It happens with case suggestions. I'll cover this case and there'll be, say, four articles on there because it's so under the ground case-wise. And you, I'd love to, I just can't. I can't, unless you start going into the realm of fiction over the quality, quantity, should I say, over the non-fiction facts, just to spread it out and add waffling, then it's sort of... And you're not doing it in a way that you would really want to do it then, are you? No, exactly. Takes away from your goals, which isn't a good thing. So you've got jeremycraddock.com. Are you active on social media at all? Where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on, on Twitter, at jezcraddock. Yeah, that's the, the the main one, Twitter. Cool. So, like I said, I'm going to link the book. It's The Jigsaw Murders, The True Story of the Ruxton Killings and the Birth of Modern Forensics, available in now both hardback and paperback, and Kindle and audiobook as right. Audiobook <laughs> as well, yes, correct, yeah. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Jeremy. I really appreciate your time, and uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. No worries at all. As we always say, we like to finish out by saying what I'm going to call my catchphrase and i'm gonna say it now which is cheerio